From the WGLT Newsroom, good morning. I'm Jack Palaznik. The second person to try for Illinois State University's presidency says he sees an opportunity to define what it means to be a Redbird. Donald Easton Brooks spoke at a public forum on campus Thursday afternoon. What is the Redbird experience? What does that feel like? Does the Redbird experience invite people in? Do you feel invited? Do you feel a part of this? If I ask your current students, what does this mean? Could they tell me? Could employees tell me? This is what the experience feels like. Easton Brooks is currently a dean at the University of Nevada, Reno. He has more than two decades of experience in higher education leadership. Two more finalists for ISU's open presidential position are expected to be announced next week. The Illinois Educational Labor Relations Board has signed off on the formation of Illinois State University's new union. United Faculty of ISU represents hundreds of tenure and tenure-track faculty members. Member and associate professor Mark Zablocki says they're preparing to negotiate a contract with the university starting next week. We have three dates set up, the 28th, March 4th, and March 14th. I can't speak to um, you know, what we're anticipating. Zablocki says union organizing truly got underway during the peak of the pandemic. He says creating the union was a years-long effort. A big part of the path to profitability this year for electric vehicle maker Rivian is cost reductions. In an earnings call, CEO RJ Scaringe says the company with a plant in normal will be paying less for parts. He says the industry as a whole has changed a lot since the last round of contracts in 2019 and 2020. Parts manufacturers now have more confidence in the viability of the sector and in Rivian in particular. Scaringe says Rivian is also buying more parts as it has ramped up production. They now see us as a large customer and they see what's coming with R2 and that gives us really meaningful negotiating leverage. Scaringe says in many cases they've been able to renegotiate and remove the price premium for parts that they had to pay for as a new company. Where they couldn't do that, he says they found new suppliers. And Eureka College is getting a radio station. The Federal Communications Commission has approved a construction permit for the station that will broadcast at 103.1 FM. Eureka absorbed Lincoln College's radio and TV program when that college closed. But federal regulations prevented moving Lincoln College's radio station, so Eureka had to apply for a new broadcast license. I'm Jack Palesnik. The NPR newscast doesn't just break a story, we follow it wherever it takes us. Stay informed with the NPR newscast every hour on the hour. Listen on 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network. Hi, it's Jen White. 1A is the place for daily conversation that takes you beyond the headlines. We bring together thoughtful guests and listeners from every state to help us take the pulse of America. And together, we'll get to the heart of the story. Listen at 9 a.m. on WGLT, Bloomington Normals Public Radio.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. There are reports that the Biden administration is preparing to announce 500 new sanctions against the Russian arms industry and other targets today. The move comes as the world prepares to mark two years since Russia launched its full-scale war on Ukraine tomorrow. Since the start of the war, millions of Ukrainians have been displaced from their homes. But in Ukraine's second largest city, many are determined to stay. NPR's Joanna Kakis has this report from Kharkiv. I am Maxim. Maxim Timchenko is seven years old. He's got big brown eyes and he's almost always laughing. He lives in a high-rise in Kharkiv with his parents and baby sister. And to understand Maxim, you need to know two things. He loves his hometown and he loves school. He's been learning English. As Maxim sings to us, he's interrupted. It's a sound he's very familiar with. Attention, air raid alert. That's an air raid sound, he says, and it's scary. What if the missile flies somewhere nearby and then explodes? Maxim says he hears explosions and air raid sirens all the time in Kharkiv, and he knows what to do. He drags out a fluffy mattress from the spare room into the hallway, which has no windows. And he crouches there, hugging a plush toy dog and his mother, Anna. When the attacks are more frequent, he sleeps out here. He feels safer that way. Thousands of school-aged children like Maxim live in Kharkiv, a city about 20 miles west of the Russian border. Ukrainian schools are regularly hit by Russian missiles, so last year the city of Kharkiv opened classrooms in part of the subway system, which doubles as a bomb shelter. Maxim attends those classes twice a week. His mother says he looks forward to them. He's very friendly, very kind, and very emotional. He wants to hug everyone. He just loves it. The subway classes have proved so successful that Kharkiv made a radical choice to build entire subterranean schools. In a leafy neighborhood of apartment buildings, construction is nearly complete on one of those schools. It will house classes from kindergarten to 11th grade. Yevhen Pasenov is Kharkiv's deputy director for housing and communal services. He guides us down dusty, unfinished steps. He doesn't tell us how far down for security reasons. It took about six months to design the school, he says, and we started construction last September. It will hold up to 900 students. Downstairs is a long corridor that seems to stretch on and on. On either side are dozens of classrooms. Kharkiv's mayor wants to open the school this spring, so the workers here are really busy. Some install lights, insulation, and wheelchair-accessible ramps. Others, sand and drill. Olha Vilmozhna is a local city administrator. 
she points to a large room. We plan to have a place with beds there, where the young children can take naps, she says. And each room will have a play area. And Pasenov adds that each classroom will be painted a different, bright color. He forces a smile, and then his face starts to darken. Our biggest challenge is to preserve our city and not let Russia destroy it, he says. But our children, they are losing a normal life. Kharkiv's mayor is Ihor Terekhov. He wants to build eight more underground schools in the city. He's trying to raise money. Each school will cost more than a million dollars. We meet the mayor in a temporary office. He keeps moving around for security reasons to avoid being targeted by Russian strikes. Obviously, it's not a sign that life is good if we're building schools underground. As you can see, the Russians constantly shell us. Just the other day, an entire family was burned alive. An entire neighborhood was destroyed. About a million people live in Kharkiv, that's half of the pre-war population. Roughly 65,000 school-aged children are also here. Terehov says the underground schools can accommodate only about 9,000. Meanwhile, he says, the city is also planning to build an underground theater. Others have already gone underground, like Serhii Jadan, a poet, novelist, and musician, giving a concert here in his bunker. A Soviet-era bomb shelter under the university has also become a popular exhibition site. And a couple of local entrepreneurs drew up plans for small underground apartments. Plenty still happens in Kharkiv above ground, of course. Cars are on the road, vegetable markets are busy, restaurants and cafes are full, even if their windows are boarded up. Like, you can't find the place, even during the week in a cafe. Like, we can look around and there would be lots of people. So, people are coming back. Maria Mezenseva is a member of parliament from Kharkiv. She spends her time off in her hometown, delivering humanitarian aid. Like, we can't accept the idea that we can give up. So, the longer it goes, the more people get tired, of course. Back at the subway school, Maxim and his classmates sing a song about spring and hope. He sits with Ksenia, a classmate who is now his best friend. Their teacher, Ludmila Demchenko, says the children, too, are tired of this war. They ask, when will the Russians stop bothering us? The children just want to take a walk in the woods or to swim in a lake. That's impossible now. But, she says, they also like being home in their city. Teaching them underground is a way to keep them safe. Kharkiv is known as the center of education, so this is not a defeat. It's a way to continue something that should be continued. Only if we stop, will it be a defeat. Class ends and Maxim and Ksenia take the bus home together. He reads aloud to her from a book about biology. And when Maxim's back home, he's ready for the next air raid siren. But as he waits, he decides to sing his favorite song.
Joanna Kikisis, NPR News, Kharkiv, Ukraine. Cybersecurity researchers have had some sleepless nights over the last several days. They're digging into a major leak of documents from a Chinese technology company that appears to be conducting global hacking operations for the Chinese government. For more, we've got NPR cybersecurity correspondent Jenna McLaughlin here to help us sort all of this out. Jenna, so what exactly is in the leak and does it seem legit? Yeah, so there are about 500 documents, and they're all in Mandarin. There's a lot of nerdy technical details in there. It got leaked to GitHub, which is a coding platform that's popular with programmers. But so far, cybersecurity experts I've spoken to say it does look legitimate. Based on their analysis, it looks like this is a collection of documents stolen from one specific Chinese technology company called Isun. So they're a contractor for Chinese agencies like the Ministry of State Security and the People's Liberation Army. There's some public information on the company, but this gives us a really rare look into more of their sensitive business. The documents include marketing materials, details about hacking technology and some of their hacking operations, as well as some other targets. And this is all work for the Chinese government. So I got to say, Jenna, I'm not too bold over or shocked that a Chinese company would be hacking for the Chinese government. So what about this makes it uh, interesting and juicy? Yeah, the revelations aren't exactly shocking, um, but it does give us this rare peek behind the curtain. I spoke to John Holquist. He leads intelligence analysis for Google's Mandiant. Here was his answer. I think the most interesting part of this is we're getting a kind of a really deep look at the Chinese cyber espionage contractor ecosystem. But we are all the way into the organization. We're looking at their their documentation, their chats, and you're getting a real unfettered access to uh, an intelligence operation you just don't see very often. Plus, he said that in cases where researchers have already analyzed a certain breach in the past, made some educated guesses about who was behind it, these documents can help them kind of fact check their work. Holquist also said that uh, learning about the prices of these operations is really interesting. He said apparently this company was selling hacked documents from NATO for only 10,000 US dollars, which is hmm. pretty cheap. Yeah, so who are the targets here? It's not exactly a surprising list again, but it is pretty long. It includes about 14 different government agencies from Western competitors like Australia and the UK to countries that have a closer relationship with China, like Pakistan. It also includes pro-democracy organizations in places like Hong Kong, you know, academic institutions. And there's some details about them bidding for a project to surveil the Uyghur people in Xinjiang. Human rights groups have strongly condemned Chinese government repressions of this Muslim population. In fact, a lot of this tech company's work appears to be focused on surveilling and harassing dissidents around the world. That includes monitoring and hacking social media platforms like X or what we used to call Twitter. Yeah, the leak, Jenna, the leak. Who is behind the leak? That's the big question. We don't know yet, but there are a few clues here. So the leak itself includes employee chats about low pay, other kinds of complaints. So there's this possibility that it could be a disgruntled employee, but it could be a really clever intelligence operation or even a competitor within China. All right, NPR cybersecurity correspondent Jenna McLaughlin. Jenna, thanks. Thank you. This is NPR News. 
I'm Peter O'Dowd. This month we're remembering the wives of famous civil rights leaders. Margaret Murray Washington, wife of Booker T, was also a pioneer in education. Oftentimes she's thinking about what are the children doing? What are the women doing? How do we provide aid for them in ways that the government is not? That's next time on Here and Now. Next time for Here and Now is today at noon on 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org. When you take the on-ramp to WGLT's Highway 309, you're on the expressway to music discovery. Our eclectic music format features great music in many genres, from Celeste to Buddy Guy to artists living right here in central Illinois. You'll discover new music on Highway 309. Merge on right now at WGLT.org and weekends on 89.1 FM. Support for WGLT comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The CPB's Community Service Grant helps WGLT bring you Morning Edition, All Things Considered, and more programming on which you depend for news, information, and entertainment. Additional support comes from WGLT listeners. This is 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org. There's a bill in Springfield to force some big cities in Illinois to abolish single-family zoning. It's not just a simple zoning change. There's a lot of issues that go into that. Normal City Manager Pam Reese says the issue of the missing middle in the housing market is very important, even though the measure wouldn't affect Bloomington Normal. That's on the next Sound Ideas, WGLT's news magazine made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. Listen this afternoon at 5. From the campus of Illinois State University. This is 89.1 WGLT Normal, part of the NPR Network. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, dedicated to creating travel experiences for the thinking person with programs designed for cultural enrichment on board and on shore. Learn more at viking.com. From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. From Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com slash wealth, Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Let's go to Maine now, where coastal communities are still struggling to recover from last month's back-to-back storms. It is a costly and complicated process. Caitlin Bedine with Maine Public Radio has this report. Greenhead Lobster is a well-established business in Stonington. With three docks in town, the company buys lobsters for more than 100 boats in the summer months before sorting and processing the lobsters for sale. Today it's relatively quiet, still the off-season, but two boats stop by one of Greenhead's docks to refuel and drop off their lobster hulls. It's high tide, which means the water is higher and close to shore, but with little wind, it's calm and flat, what owner Hugh Reynolds calls an ice cream day. It's almost hard to picture the devastating January storms that flooded these same docks, sweeping crates out into the water and inundating electrical systems onshore. I mean, you're just sitting there, you're like, ooh, that's pretty high tide. That's really high tide. Reynolds wasn't at the office during the first storm, taking a rare sick day. 
but that just meant he was getting a constant stream of texts and photos as the storm escalated. Half hour later, like, we're flooded. Like, unimaginable. Things are underwater. I mean, it just happened so quickly, you know. It's a similar story along all of Maine's coast. And unlike the fishing industries in other states, Maine's is primarily small family businesses, many that have existed for generations. And now they're faced with trying to restore the historic infrastructure. Ben Martins of the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association estimates that more than half of Maine's working waterfront was damaged in the storms. There are things that will not ever be coming back because of these storms. And, and how do we how do we remember them, how to reflect on that, and how do we not lose that important part of our heritage? Martin says many structures were built before modern zoning and permitting were in place, and in some cases, it's not even clear who owns the land. Buildings were grandfathered into the regulations. Families and businesses are trying to rebuild, but because the damage is so unprecedented, local officials are struggling to find answers about whether some structures can even be replaced. Even right now, I've got fishermen up and down the coast who are trying to rebuild, and they're like, well, can we build it taller? It's like, you are not allowed to do that right now. At Greenhead Lobster, although the company is functional for the off-season, Reynolds estimates he has three to four months before lobster season starts in earnest. And it will cost at least a quarter of a million dollars to be ready by then, not even trying to think of longer-term repairs. I'm a little bit short-sighted here, but I don't know what to do else to do about it. As for Maine's working waterfront as a whole, Martin says he expects repairs to cost at least tens of millions. Although state and federal legislators have voiced support, the timeline for getting funding to businesses isn't clear and could take months. I had a fisherman who called and was asking, he's like, should I build this back as quickly and cheaply as possible with the thought of just making a disposable piece of working waterfront to tear down for when there are resources and opportunities to build it back stronger? And... I was like, well, you could do that. We also might get another storm next week or next month. But with warmer months and a busy fishing season ahead, coastal communities can't wait for answers on zoning or funding or timing. They're already doing what they can to get back up and running. For NPR News, I'm Caitlin Bedayan. Time now for StoryCorps. Gilbert Zermeno grew up on the plains of West Texas. He came from a big family that didn't have much. They got by on the $100 a week Gilbert's father made picking cotton. So when Gilbert wanted to join the school band, his parents had to get creative. He sat down at StoryCorps with his wife, Pat Powers Zermeno. I was imagining myself playing a saxophone. And I brought home a note. I showed my mom, the school is bringing in a instrument salesman. And all the kids are going to be there that want to be in band. And there was this huge dust storm. She goes, there's no way that we can drive in this dust storm, Michal. It's just too dangerous. So what I did was I took this little statue of the Virgen of Guadalupe and I put her on the window. And I said, I really want to be in the band. Please make this storm go away. Ten minutes later, I just stopped. And I went over to mom. I went, no wind. So now she's in a really tough spot. <laughs> so... We get in the car, and we drive to the school, and there's all these new shiny instruments, and the parents are just writing checks out. And my mom looks at one of the checks. It's like 650 bucks. That's six weeks' worth of work for my dad. So she says, where's the band director? ¿Dónde está el director? So we went in, and the man said, you know, well, the senior left behind this trombone. 
It's not saxophone. It's not shiny. It has a little <laughs> bit of green rust around it. And he opens it up and the crushed velvet is no longer crushed. It's like annihilated inside. <laughs> and I'm just looking at it going, that is so pathetic. And my mom says, ¿Cuánto? How much? The director says, $50. And mom worked out a payment plan. She sent $20 initially. And then she sent him $5 every week. But I was horrible. So... I sat on the toilet in the bathroom because it was the only room that had a door. And my poor mother had to listen to me play the same thing over and over again. And she would be turning up the radio <laughs> as loud as she could. But I also noticed that the more I practiced and the better I got, the radio was turned down a little further. And I still have that trombone to this day. And that's why our child plays the trombone. She could have played any instrument she wanted, and I encouraged that. I said, no, Mija, really, you can play any instrument you want. I could be one of those parents who could write a check out for a saxophone, anything you want. She goes, no, I, I want to play the trombone. That's Gilbert Zermeño and his wife, Pat Powers Zermeño, at StoryCorps in Phoenix. His story originally ran here on Morning Edition back in 2013. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Dignity Memorial, helping families protect their loved ones and gain peace of mind by planning cremations and funerals in advance. Dedicated to professionalism and compassion in every detail. More at DignityMemorial.com. And from Subaru, who along with its retailers, is partnering with Operation Warm to provide more than 150,000 children in need with new necessities like coats, shoes, and socks. Subaru, more than a car company. Black students at Ole Miss protested the racial inequalities they faced back in 1970, and many were arrested. Today, students on campus continue that legacy. That work comes from addressing the difficult history and not whitewashing it, but instead saying, this is what we did, and this is what we're going to do, and this is how we're moving forward. Hear that story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today at 3 on 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org. For a roundup of the day's most important business and economic news, catch my colleague Kai Rizdahl later today on Marketplace. No econ degree or finance background required. Listen beginning at 5.30 on 89.1 FM and WGLT.org, Bloomington Normal's public media. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden is announcing new U.S. sanctions on Russia. In a statement from the White House this morning, the president says more than 500 additional sanctions are being placed on Russia in response to the death of Alexei Navalny. The Russian political opposition leader died last week at a penal colony where he was being held. Biden met with Navalny's widow and daughter yesterday in San Francisco before wrapping up a re-election campaign swing in California. One thing I made that was made clear to me is that uh, Yolanda is going to, she's going to continue to the fight he had underway. She's not letting up. The statement says those being sanctioned include individuals connected to Navalny's imprisonment. Cybersecurity researchers are examining a major leak of documents from a Chinese technology company. 
NPR's Jenna McLaughlin says the company appears to be conducting global hacking operations on behalf of China's government. There are about 500 documents, and they're all in Mandarin. There's a lot of nerdy technical details in there. It got leaked to GitHub, which is a coding platform that's popular with programmers. But so far, cybersecurity experts I've spoken to say it does look legitimate. The documents were posted anonymously online last week. They show more than a dozen governments were targeted, as well as NATO. This is NPR News.